This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So we have a a terrific event for you this evening uh, featuring Valerie Jarrett uh, during the Obama presidency. Valerie was a key White House advisor overseeing the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs and chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls. Uh, But her influence derived not just from her important position as a senior advisor. She's been a longtime friend and confidant of the Obamas, dating from their years together in Chicago, a journey she recounts in her new book, Finding My Voice. Still, as as one Chicago newspaper reviewer put it, Valerie's book isn't a a tell-all that discloses secrets. It's really more of a guide that she hopes will connect with younger generations, a guide showing how lives and careers often take unexpected turns rather than move in straight trajectories. In fact, Valerie's book opens at a low point in her life. She was 30 at the time, a lawyer at a Chicago law firm and a single mom with a year and a half old daughter. She'd expected that the steady progression from law school to prestigious job, marriage, and a baby would lead to fulfillment and happiness. Instead, she was miserable struggling to balance work and family, and not feeling successful at anything, and perhaps most importantly, she didn't know her own voice. Over the next 30 years, her life would take some zigs and zags. She stepped away from corporate law and into city government, subsequently rising to be deputy chief of staff to Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, and later commissioner of planning and development. She became CEO of the Habitat Company, a real estate development and management firm, and chaired the boards of the Chicago Stock Exchange, the University of Chicago Medical Center, and the Chicago Transit Board. Then, moving to her White House role and staying the full eight years under Obama, she managed to claim the record of longest-serving senior advisor to any president in history. Currently, Valerie is chairman of the board of When We All Vote, co-chair of the United State of Women, and a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and to ATTN, as well as a distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Valerie describes her memoir as the story of how she found her voice and learned to trust it. And reviewers have praised the book as moving, insightful, and well-told. She'll be in conversation here this evening with Anita Dunn, who's a highly regarded communications strategist. Anita served as senior advisor to Obama's presidential campaigns and worked for a time as White House communications director in 2009. She's now managing director at SKD Knickerbocker, a strategic communications firm here in DC. Please join me in welcoming Valerie Jarrett and Anita Dunn. Good evening, everybody. We hear you've been downstairs drinking. Is that true? <laughs> Lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> She's jealous. It's true. Okay, so thank you all for coming out. Traffic, metro, rain. 
for this conversation. We're going to be in conversation for about 40 minutes or so, and then there's going to be time for questions. When we get close to the time for questions, I'll let you know so that you can start queuing at the uh, microphones, because I suspect that somewhere in this room there are a few people who would like to ask Valerie some questions. <laughs> Valerie, I'm going to start with an easy one, and then I will go to some tougher ones. Remember, we're friends here. <laughs> we are friends. So. And those are the people who can ask the tough questions, right? So, so, you know, there have been a lot of Obama books written about the administration by journalists, by people who served in the administration. The First Lady had a memoir that was, oh, I guess a little successful. <laughs> the best-selling memoir in history? In history, yes. And she's still going. And she's still going. And the president himself is, is working on his memoir. So this isn't an Obama book, per se. But I am curious, why did you write this book at this time? Well, all good things lead back to one person. Laura, my daughter, who's here today. Say hello, Laura. <laughs> uh, Maybe, I think maybe around September or so of 2016, Laura interviewed me for StoryCorps. They were doing uh, an oral history, and so who better than my own daughter to interview me? And the first question she asked me is, what would you tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? And I thought, well, that's a pretty good question. And as I went about answering it, I realized I actually had a lot to tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett. And then after uh, we left the administration, I did some soul-searching beginning with going through the stages of grief, sometimes all in one day. But it was a good time to take stock. I turned 60 the week after the 2016 election. And so the, for the first time in my life, I wasn't actually looking for a job. And I was able to get up every single day and do what I wanted to do. Don't be jealous, but I think I've earned that. Uh, and I thought, well, why not tell the story? Why not tell my story? Because as you heard in the introduction, it was a zig and a zag. It was not a straight line. And I learned very early on the advantages of enjoying the adventure. And even though sometimes a straight line is comfortable and you cling to that, and it's terrifying to get outside of that comfort zone, the adventure really is in the zig and the zag. And so the more I thought about the early years of my career and what I learned there and the building blocks that led me here to this wonderful town, I thought, well, why not share that story in the hope that it might be helpful to some other folks who might be trying to find their voice. So you have such an amazing life, and I have been friends with Valerie for a while, but when I was reading her book for the first time, I was learning so much about her. But there is a moment that I think a lot of women can really identify with, where you are sitting at your desk at a law firm, very successful person, and you're miserable, <laughs> just miserable. And I wondered if you want to talk about that moment a little. I will, but first I want to know how many of you are with corporate law firms before I insult you? <laughs> All right, a few of you, okay. okay. So you can picture this then. So I'm sitting uh, in a very fancy office in a big corporate law firm, and I turn my back away from the door because I have a rule which is no crying in the office. And I sit there and I look out the window at a magnificent view of Lake Michigan, and I just cry. And I thought, how in the world did I end up here, miserable as I am? And I guess the reason why dates back about 10 years before that, when I made a 10-year plan. Coming out of college, I said, well, 
I'm not exactly sure what I want to do. And my mother kept telling me, go and get an advanced degree. And she said, if you don't get an advanced degree, you're going to be selling girdles in the basement of Marshall Fields. <laughs> that did not sound attractive to me. So I thought, okay, my best friend was in law school, two years ahead of me. She said, come on to law school. And so I, I thought, well, I don't know, not so fast. I had started out pre-med. I went to an um, anatomy class with my boyfriend who was in medical school, and I saw those cadavers at the same time as I was taking organic chemistry. That was the end of that. <laughs> then I thought, well, maybe I'll take the GREs and go into business. And so there was a really, really good party the night before the GREs. I didn't make it to the GREs. <laughs> I did take the LSATs, and I did get in a good law school, so off I went. So I said, I need a plan. So my plan was go right to law school. I probably would return back to Chicago. I thought about going to Washington, D.C. Um, I had worked here one summer, and I thought, well, all they talk about is politics. How interesting could that be, right? <laughs> so I decided, all right, I'll probably go back to Chicago. Then when I get back to Chicago, I'll get a great job at a big law firm because they were all coming up to law school and interviewing, and I knew about that. And that's really all I knew about. And then I thought, well, then I have to fall madly in love, right? And then I got to get married, and then I have to have a baby before I turn 30, thinking about the biological clock ticking away. You guys are lucky. It ticks a little later now, so you got some time. And then I'll be ha live happily ever after, right? I'll make partner in a law firm. What more could anybody want? And so... I set off on that path. I went right to one law firm. It was kind of boring, so I got accepted at an even better law firm, so I started working there. And then I married, figuratively, the boy next door. In that, um, our mothers grew up in the exact same apartment building. Our dads were friends. He was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. I'd had a crush on him since I was eight and he was 12. <laughs> And finally, 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 when I was about 26, he looked at me. And I, he had me with hello, and we got married. And what could possibly go wrong, right? Plenty. <laughs> Plenty could go wrong. Um, I did have Laura, just shy of my 29th birthday. That went right according to plan. But at 31, having returned from maternity leave and having gotten to the point where I was leaving her every single day, doing work that was not inspirational to me, where it didn't motivate me, I wasn't even very good at it. And I kept thinking, will she ever be proud of me? Will I ever do something where she'll go, yeah, that's my mom. She's doing something she cares about. And at the exact same time, a very dear friend of mine who worked for the city of Chicago said, uh, and had been at a law firm, left to go to the city, was heading back to his law firm, and he said, why don't you think about joining the administration of Mayor Harold Washington. He's the first African-American mayor of Chicago, and he'd just been re-elected to his second term. And he said these words I'll never forget. He said, you'll feel a part of something bigger and more important than yourself. And so I took this leap of faith, and you know, everybody in my family said I was crazy. My mother, for reasons I can't understand, actually took me to work the first day at City Hall, and I don't know why I ended up getting in a car with her, but. We pull up, and she's like, I can't believe I paid all that tuition to drop you off here. That's my mom. <laughs> Just to digress for, no, for a minute, my parents sacrificed mightily for me to go to college, but before I went, my mother calculated how much every class cost. And I don't mean like the semester, I mean like each day. <laughs> and she handed me a piece of paper with that dollar amount on it and said, do not cut class because this is what it's costing me. So when she dropped me in front of City Hall, she gave me her lecture about why are you doing this? And I got out of the car and I walked in to City Hall 
And I got off on the fifth floor and it said, office of the mayor. That was not my office. So I turned down the hall and there was another office that said corporation council. And so I walked in and my boss greeted me at the door. I saw him the other night and he started chuckling about the story. And he said, let me take you to your office. And I thought, why are you doing air quotes? <laughs> so we go to the back of the bowels of this agency and there is a cubicle with a window facing an alley and right on the other side of the alley is another big building and that was my view and I did this gut check Anita and I thought what in the world are you doing and then I thought about it for like not more than a split second and I said this is really where you belong and so that was my first zig and a lot of people thought it was a step down I was taking a cut in pay, obviously a cut in office. I didn't have any title or anything like that. But I felt like I was going to work for the people of Chicago. And I grew up there. I loved the city. And it seemed right to me. And so it's really the quiet voice. That's the one inside of you that you have to learn to trust. So you grew up in Chicago. You love Chicago. And then all of a sudden, and we'll get to how this happened in a minute, you're in Washington which is very different from Chicago. And this is a Washington crowd, so I wanted to get to the Washington part. All right, um, here we go. Yeah. So first of all, what's, you know, it, what surprised you most about Washington when you first got here? What surprised me? Well, I knew it was a company town because of that, that um, summer I had worked here. I think what surprised me, disappointed me is maybe a better word, was in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, where we've got a lot on our plates, two wars, energy crisis, public education crisis, confidence crisis in terms of how we were perceived around the world, that uh, people here were willing to put their short-term political interests ahead of what was best for the country. And in Chicago, I mean, you guys know Chicago's reputation. It's pretty rough and tumble <laughs> when it comes to politics, but not like that. I always felt in Chicago that people were still trying to do what was right for the city. They might have disagreed about strategy, and they certainly disagreed about who was going to get credit. But they didn't disagree fundamentally about trying to move our city forward. And I didn't feel that was the case here. And it took me probably longer than it should have before I figured out, oh, you know what, they're just like not that into us. <laughs> they aren't. And the Republicans are just, they're just not going to come to the table. Their strategy, as they announced, uh, and were quite open about, frankly, was just to say no. And I just... I wasn't prepared for that. So, surprised and disappointed. Surprised and disappointed. Okay, so we'll go to a happier topic. What was the best moment of the eight years? Oh, my gosh. There were so many. I really, I kids. Every, well, first of all, a lot of the folks who worked on our campaign went right from college to the campaign, right from the campaign to the White House or the administration. It was too easy. I had to like wait for my, you know, so much of my life to get here. I was so happy to be here. And so I, I feel like I appreciated it maybe more than some of the yeah. folks who thought, oh yeah, this is how, this is how life oh, works. <laughs> In my wildest dreams, I did not expect to be a senior advisor to the president. Uh, so it's hard to pick a best day, but I, I, think, I think a memory I'll share with you is one that, I, that resonates to this day with me because I think it says, a lot about the moment, but it also says a lot about uh, President Obama. So the night that uh, the Affordable Care Act was up for a vote, uh, we pretty much knew we had the votes because we're from Chicago. We count our votes early. We know who's going to, you know, the outcome. It was not a mystery to us at all. So uh, Susan Schur, who worked in the administration, uh, her, 
home was across the hall from mine. So we went home. It was like 10 minutes from the White House and got out a bowl of popcorn. She got into her pajamas. I got a mine. She came across the hall. It was like a dorm. We had a little glass of wine and we were getting ready to watch this historic moment. Just then we, get, we were reached out to by Katie Johnson, who worked for President Obama. She was his assistant. And she said, Valerie, everybody who worked on the Affordable Care Act, President Obama would like to be at the White House so we watch the vote together. It's such a historic moment, right? Head on back to the White House. So I said, you know, we're good. We got our <laughs> popcorn in the PJs, glass of wine. We'll be there in spirit. And she says, <clears throat> President Obama would like everybody who worked on the Affordable Care Act to return to the White House. So Susan and I look at each other and we're like, oh, that's right, he's our boss, we gotta go. <laughs> so we get dressed quickly and we rush back to the White House and after the vote, President Obama invited everybody up to their residence. Now, keep in mind, they live in a museum. And so living in a museum with tours coming through and staff working around, their private residence was really kind of off limits and they just tried to keep it for their family. Mrs. Obama was out of town. And so... <laughs> He thought, I can do this. I can actually have 100 people come upstairs. And so up we, and you can you imagine what was going on, like the Secret Service, like renegades moving to the residence, plus 100 people. And, uh, and someone else is saying, are there any pigs in the blanket in the freezer? Can we pull them out? And where's the champagne? So they threw a spontaneous party, as only the White House staff can do. And it was a beautiful uh, spring evening unseasonably warm. And it reminded me of the weather in Grant Park on election night back in 2008. And as the evening went on and uh, the crowd began to thin out a little bit, and it's like about 2 a.m. by that point, I sidled up next to President Obama and he'd just been in the best spirits. He was walking around telling everybody just what a spectacular job they'd done from Vice President Biden to a junior person on my staff who found a letter written by this amazing woman, Natoma Canfield. And Natoma began to be just the symbol of why the Affordable Care Act was so important. A woman who had had cancer, went into remission, her hospital, her insurance premium skyrocketed because she had a pre-existing condition, and so she was choosing between covering the payments on her mother's childhood, or the home of her mother that had been her childhood home, and paying for her health insurance. And so she gambled and she lost because of course the cancer came back. And so this young woman, Ann Widger on my staff had found a cotoma. So if you can imagine, I'm sure Ann had never actually had a conversation with President Obama before and here he is pouring his heart into how appreciative he is of her. It was that kind of a night. So at the end of the evening, I walked up to him. We were on the Truman balcony my favorite place in the White House. And looking out over the, you know, the South Lawn and the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial, and I said, Mr. President, how do you feel tonight compared to election night when you were elected? And he looked at me and he said, Valerie, there's no comparison. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, election night was simply the means to get to this night. This was not about me. This is what, what we could do with that election for the American people. And I thought, that's why I work for you. <laughs> so I read your book for the first time, as you know, around Christmas, and then I read a few additional iterations, and as I was looking through it again in preparation for this evening, I noticed there seemed to be an inordinate number of 
stories and anecdotes are just things that start with you being up before sunrise. <laughs> I'm an early riser. She's a very early riser. A morning so, person. But you're also an evening person and, some, and, and also one of the few people who really returns emails very quickly, I would have to say. So my question for you is, how did you last eight years, given the pace of the White House? How did you do that for eight years? Well, first of all, never in my wildest dreams would I have left. Why would I leave when I knew I had the best job ever? I think being a little older, and I talk about in my book, Tina Chin and I being among the older folks in the White House, uh, I knew how to pace myself, and I, wasn't, I was determined not to burn out. And I was anchored by incredible family and friends, many of who are here tonight. And we, we established routines. I mean, my cousin Tony and Dwight will have Sunday dinners, and we'll go over there for Sunday dinner and just relax. And that's a tradition that my mom, at the age of 90, continues in Chicago. Every Sunday, the whole family comes over for dinner. And that routine was very grounding and rejuvenating for me. I have a group of friends who I used to have brunch with on Sunday. A lot of this evolves around mealtime. Um, <laughs> and we would sit and have like a three-hour brunch, and we never, ever talked about work. And several of us worked in the administration, and we just simply wouldn't talk about work. And these were all one cousin and the rest friends who I had been with forever. And know you back in the day where, you know, they can tease you and make fun of you, and they're really not interested in the fact that you are a senior advisor to the president. Uh, and then I tried to work out on a regular basis, and it's something I started when Laura was young, where I would do it early in the morning, and because if any time I said, well, I'm going to work out later in the day, it just never happened. But that hour that I would spend, but you all, some of you know that feeling, you'll say, oh, I'll do it at the end of the day. <laughs> never happens with me, at least. But something about that hour, and even if I was watching Morning Joe or reading the newspaper while but I was working were. out... I used to watch it pretty religiously. Yes. I don't have as much time, although I was on it this week, so I should say, give them a shout-out. Uh, but I did watch it. I felt like it was part of my responsibility back then. And in fact, there were some mornings when I would walk in later into the Oval Office and I'd be a little agitated about something. I'd just like be, have a little twitch, and President Obama would say, you've been watching Morning Joe. <laughs> Turn off that show and get outside of the, this little you know, echo chamber. Uh, I digress. But anyway, so I would work out, and then that would be my time to just kind of settle myself. And the other thing I did every single day for eight years is I thought about this man that I met on the campaign trail. And I don't know, you know, you, one of the advantages of a campaign is you get to travel this great country and meet all kinds of people, amazing people. I, I call them ordinary people doing amazing things. And uh, we met a man in Austin, Texas, during the primary, uh, and it was right after a debate. And I will confess to you that President Obama is not a morning person. I am. And I'm chipper in the morning. And I had to learn to modulate my voice down a little bit, because <laughs> he was really not interested in my chipperness at the crack of dawn. And so that morning, we got into an elevator at about 7.30 in the morning. And he used to be a little punctually challenged, too. This morning, he got better on the campaign trail, but this morning, he walked in at 7.30 on the dot, so I kind of smiled to myself. But he had a cold, and he was a little grumpy, and he didn't enjoy debating in the primary at all, because they didn't disagree about that much. And um, this gentleman was operating our elevator, a black guy... It was like in his, it looked like he was in his upper 60s or 70s. And he cleared his throat. And I thought, I would not be starting a conversation. It's morning, really early, <laughs> 7.30, don't do it. And, uh, but that gentleman was having none of it. So he clears his throat and he said, sir, <clears throat> I would like to give you something. 
and he hands uh, then-Senator Obama a patch from his military uniform. Exactly. So President Obama says, oh, sir, I couldn't possibly uh, take the patch. And the guy goes, no, you have to. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, the guy kind of steals himself and he said, sir, I've carried this patch with me every day for 40 years. And I want you to have it. And I wore it when I served this country. And it's kept me safe and strong. And I've had some challenges in life. And it's what I want to do for you. Well, I burst into tears. And it was a small elevator, and it, it wasn't like, you know, those tears where it just wells up and drill, you know? No, it was like, <gasps> I couldn't catch my breath. And this was like long before people used to pass their newborn baby to him over a mosh pit, right? <laughs> this was before that started happening. I still don't understand. Don't do that with any newborn babies. <laughs> Hold your baby. Don't throw it up to the air for the president to catch it. So anyway, this was before any of this happened. So I collect myself, and later in the day, this story will make sense in a minute. Later in the day, I uh, said to him, what did you do with that military patch? And he said, I put it in my pocket. And I thought, you know what, typical man. I didn't mean, like, where'd you put it? I mean, how did it make you feel? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, men and women. You both know what I'm talking about. But this is how he got me back. He said, I meant I put it in my pocket. So he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out about 10 or 12 trinkets and he puts them on the table. And he tells me the person's name who gave it to him, if he knew the name, where he was, the circumstances, and why it was so special that he kept it in his pocket. And that just really hit home to me. So every morning when I came through the gates of the White House, I would think about that man. And I would say, try to do something in the course of the day that will make him proud of the fact that he gave up his prized possession for y'all to get where you're going. And I would, the car would pull up to the gate with the Secret Service, and I'd watch the Washington Monument blink three times, and I'd just close my eyes, and I'd think of him. And it, that really grounded me. Well, I've told this story so many times. Many of you have probably heard the story, and it caught the ear of a reporter for the Washington Post. And so at the beginning of the second term, she called me before it actually started during the winter break and said, remember that story about that man that you always tell? And I said, sure, I remember it, the story. I've thought about him every day for four years. And so she said, I want to do a big profile on him. How can I find him? Well, my immediate reaction is, no, 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 no. What if he's an ax murderer? I don't know him, but I've been thinking about him every day. I don't want to know anything more about him. I like my fantasy of that man. Well, Karen Tumultry, if anybody of you know Karen, she does not take no for an answer. So she tracks this man down, and I'm in Hawaii on vacation, and she sends me an email. Valerie, I found the gentleman. His name is Earl Smith, and he's now head of security for the Hyatt Hotel in Austin, Texas. Here's his email if you'd like to write him. So I get off the treadmill, because I'm reading and type, don't do that. Just get off the treadmill to type. <laughs> And I wrote, Dear Mr. Smith, my name is Valerie Jarrett. I met you in the elevator with then-Senator Obama when you gave him a patch from your military uniform. I'm the one that was crying in the elevator. <laughs> and he writes me back like that. Dear Miss Jarrett, I remember you well, and there hasn't been a single day I've regretted giving that gift to President Obama. So I tell President Obama, I found the gentleman who gave you that patch. And he said, oh, that's lovely. Why don't you invite him to the inauguration? So I reach out to Mr. Smith, and I say, President Obama would like you to come to the inauguration. Mr. Smith came to Washington. 
And as a bonus, and as a bonus, of course, President Obama says we're invited by the Oval Office. So the second day, January 21st, in walks Mr. Smith. He walks into the Oval Office, and I'd been joking with him out front. He was as good as any fantasy could have been. He was delicious. <laughs> and um, he walks into the Oval Office, and he salutes President Obama. And President Obama salutes him back, and of course, I burst into tears again. <laughs> Okay, well, since you brought up Barack Obama. <laughs> he had to come up eventually, right? Yeah. One of my favorite stories in your book, and I actually went back and read the first lady's version of this as well, just because I was fact-checking Valerie, of course. But, <laughs> but one of my favorite stories is the story about your first meeting with Barack Obama, which is in a sense, almost an interview, but an interview of you. So I wondered if you wanted to share that story. And then I'll tell you what Michelle said. <laughs> yeah, so, all right, so um, I was promoted to Deputy Chief of Staff for Mayor Daley, and I was trying to staff up our office, and people were sending me resumes, and Susan Schur, who I mentioned was across the hall, was the Corporation Counsel at the time, and she sends me a resume, and across the top it says, brilliant young lawyer, at a big law firm, sorry guys at the big law firm, has no interest in staying at that big law firm and would like to explore public service. And I thought, my kind of person. So I invite her in for an interview. And at this point, she's Michelle Robinson, not married yet. She walks in my office and she sees, my, she sees her resume sitting on my desk. And she never mentions a word that's in the resume. I'm sure she thought she could read. I don't have to resuscitate what's in there, repeat everything that's in there. Instead, she told me her story. And it's a story, of course, you all know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, uh, working class family, hadn't gone to college, her parents, but cared about education and encouraged both Michelle and her brother Craig to go to college and, and pursue education and understand the importance of excellence and a commitment to those who much is given, much is expected. So we talked about that. And we talked about her engagement to this guy, and that was about it. So I was so, and then she, well, she did start asking me a bunch of questions that I didn't really have good answers for. Like, what was the job going to be? I was like, I just got here. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> no idea what the job's going to be. Come work in the mayor's office. Nobody else asked that question. Everybody else is like, oh, I can't wait to work in the mayor's office. She's like, exactly what am I going to be doing here? So... Um, a 20-minute interview turned into an hour and 10, whatever, and at the end of it, um, I offered her a job on the spot. Now, I had no authority to offer her a job, I would add, <laughs> but I thought nobody's going to stand in the way of this remarkable woman joining our team. Wisely, she demurred, and I was talking to her a few days later, and I said, well, are you going to come? And she said, we got a problem. I said, what's our problem? She said, my fiancé does not think it's a good idea, and I'm like, well, Who's your fiance and why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> right? So she said, well, and she chuckled. She said, his name is Barack Obama and he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. And he has some concerns about me going from a law firm right into the mayor's office. At least you worked in the law department for four years before you went into the political position. And he was wondering, would you have dinner with us? So I thought, well, that's a little unusual, right? And then I said, yes. And I am really glad I said yes. That was a smart dinner for me to go to. And so that's where I met Barack Obama and sat down and the three of us had a dinner and that was 28 years ago. The rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> 
she did. She did join my team, by the way. So whatever test I had, I passed it that night. <laughs> you know, when, um, when Barack Obama was elected president, there was some talk about you taking his Senate seat in Illinois. Some talk, yes. Some talk. There were a lot of people who thought that you would have made a great senator. Thank you. And I was actually one of those people, I should confess. I was going to say, this is who was doing the talking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you decided to go into the White House. And, you know, it is not unusual for a president to have a close friend as part of that White House staff or in the administration. Someone the president knows has his back and hopefully her back in the future. Um, you know, someone that, yes. Yeah. That was good. Thank you. She slipped that right in. Just slipped it in. <laughs> and, you know, Bill Clinton had Bruce Lindsay. Obviously, John Kennedy put his brother in the cabinet. You want to have someone around that you can trust. And obviously, Barack Obama had that kind of relationship with you. As you heard during Bradley Graham's introduction of Valerie, she is a Stanford graduate, University of Michigan Law School, was deputy chief of staff to Mayor Daley, was the head of the Chicago Transit Authority, was a CEO of a housing um, company, Habitat. Um, Not an unqualified person. Yet, um, you write in your book, and I was a witness to this as well, that when she became, you know, was named a senior advisor and was going into the White House, that it meant some resistance on some people whose basic question was, how come she's coming, right? And I, I put the question to you, Valerie, given your background, your experience, your qualifications, your relationship with the president, if your name had been Victor Jarrett, do you Ooh. think people would have had the same problem? Ooh, what do you think? Yeah. I don't know. Possibly no, not. They'd have been fine. <laughs> it's possible not. Uh, it was. It's unusual. But you know what? I kind of figured, and Anita, you were right there with me every step of the way. Is is it? When President Obama uh, formed the White House, it's like a startup company. You start with nothing. And I walked in the first day while they were at the inaugural parade. I don't like the cold. And it had been really cold that day. So I was like, and I, and I actually don't like parades either. So I scooted into the White House and there was nobody there. So you literally start from the ground up. And we, he said later that early on he really wanted to get the best players on the field and that he prided himself by the end of the first term because he had the best team. And I think a team takes a minute to build, and it depends on getting to know each other, seeing each other through tough moments. How do you react? Um, Are you trustworthy? What do you do? And, you know, there are a lot of times where things go wrong and people start pointing fingers at one another, and we didn't do that. And we really rallied around each other and supported one another. But it took a minute to test that relationship and to see, you know, would I be the kind of person that circumvented process and went and whispered to the president after we'd already settled on something? Or did I consider myself a part of a team where our decision-making would be better if it was organized and structured and we would send paper to the president that he would read ahead of time and feel like he was up to speed so that the decision-making process went better? And so I think it just took a minute for people to appreciate that. And then the other thing that was different is that this is a town that centers around Congress. And my responsibilities had nothing to do with Congress. I had a really good job, I thought. (laughs) I mean, it was the the elected officials outside of Washington, so the mayors, the governors, the uh, state U.S. attorneys, not the U.S. attorneys, the attorneys general, 
city council, everybody who was elected other than members of Congress, and also public engagement, which is the gateway by which the American people interface with the White House. Uh, and then chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls, nothing really to do with Congress. And so I think this was unusual for a president to have these responsibilities all in one place. And so that took a minute as well. In the fall of 2009, there was a dinner that the president convened, I suspect, um, with a Valerie Jarrett whisper in his ear, of these senior women in his administration to talk about culture, the culture, culture of said administration. <laughs> and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little about that. Yeah, so um, I began to notice a couple months in, while we're dealing with the economic crisis and everything else that's going on, that some of the senior women um, were not speaking up in meetings as much as I knew they could. And they just started to shrink a little bit. And that was troublesome to me. And they shrunk more when President Obama was not in the room than he was. Interestingly enough, you'd think they might have been intimidated by him. But he made it so easy for everybody to participate. And he would ask a question, and if the junior most person in the room had something to say, he'd lean into that person and he'd look them right in the eye. And if they disagreed with him, well, then they got the full Obama in. Like, yes, tell me why you disagree with me. Because he thought he would make better decisions if you heard from all voices. And I chaired the, co-chaired his transition, and his directive to us was not only to go out and find the most qualified, smart, dedicated public servants we could, but also to go out and find people who would be willing to collaborate and listen to one another and push each other and push him. And I think oftentimes, the higher you go up in an organization, the harder it is for the people or the person at the top to be told what they don't want to hear. And he wanted to do the opposite, which is to create a culture where we pushed him to enhance his decision-making process. So I said to him, I'm feeling like the women are shrinking. And he's like, do you think so? And I was like, I think so. So he said, well, we will do something about that because that's not the culture I want to have here. So let's invite the senior women over to my house for dinner. Uh, and house being like the White House. So <laughs> not the private quarters, but we were on the state floor in the, in the actually in the state dining room. You were there, Anita. Yeah. And so I did go to every woman ahead of the dinner, and I said, you better go in there and tell him the truth, because <laughs> I've told him there's an issue, and if you go, oh, sir, everything's just fine, I'm going to look stupid. So don't do that. And lo and behold, I thought it was one of the more interesting, constructive meetings that we had, and he went around the room, and you'll remember it was the same night as the Fort Hood right. uh, murders. Mm -hmm. And... Unfortunately, it was the first of many mass tra tragedies that happened on our watch. And many of the women were like, I don't think he's going to come because he's mm -hmm. down in the Situation Room and dealing with it. And he showed up like two minutes late and he stayed for two and a half hours. And mm -hmm. he heard every woman in the room. And I remember at one point he said, look, what I hear you're saying is, is that you feel intimidated to speak up. You're not sure if your opinions are going to be taken seriously. One thing happened, and I bet this has happened to every woman in this room, where you say, you make a point in a meeting, and nobody really pays, you're nodding already, nobody really says, <laughs> yes, and nobody really acknowledges what you said, and then like 20 minutes later, a guy makes the same point, no. and you're like, well, wait a minute, I just said that. How come you aren't listening to me? You know it happens. One example. So, uh, but he said something that was so important.
important, and that was this. He said, look, if you don't speak up and you have an idea, then you are doing me a disservice. He said, this isn't about you. This is about you and you being responsible for bringing ideas to the table that reflect your life experiences and your expertise. And if you're quiet, then I'm making a less informed decision. And he said, this is the White House. It means that you're going to have to get in there and you're going to have to fight for your ideas, but that is what I expect of you. When you tell a group of women, this is what I expect of you, speak up. <laughs> Then everybody started feeling more comfortable. But he also said, look, it's going to take me a minute. Culture is not, you know, doesn't change instantaneously. But if it isn't better and you think you need to have another dinner, because I think at the end of that night, everybody right. was feeling heard and uh, valued and had a renewed dedication. He said, if you feel like you're not being heard, then tell Valerie and we'll have another dinner. So I started having dinners, setting up dinners myself with the women in the White House. And we would go out to restaurants all around town and we would talk about everything but work. It was just like my Sunday dinners and brunches with my family and friends. And we got to know each other. We got to know about our children or our family, if you had a sick parent or a kid going off to school for the first time or prior life experiences. Mm -hmm. And we became not just colleagues, but we became friends. And somebody wrote an article here in um, Washington, I guess it was in the Post, about the women in the White House orchestrated this um, approach that we would all be supportive of one another in meetings and that that would help empower us. It really didn't happen that way. It was quite organic. What happened was we got to know each other. And if you've just had dinner with somebody the night before and you're in a meeting with them and you're sitting across the table from them, they're rooting for you. And you felt this sense of kinship with one another, and we probably did support each other, but it was really because we'd gotten to know one another. And so my message there is that you do have to build relationships with the people with whom you work, and then it makes it more likely that you're going to actually listen to one another when you contribute. Okay, so if you have questions, the time has come for you to start standing behind those microphones. I'm going to ask Valerie one last question, because I'm dying to ask her, which is... Um, you know, and I know Valerie does not want to talk about the current administration. However, I'm asking about it. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen the um, Secretary of Homeland Security um, resign. Um, there go those air quotes again. <laughs> resign. Um, the director of the Secret Service, who has been there, I believe, 40 years? Uh, well, anyway, the director of the Secret Service is leaving, and as we like to say, just another day in the Trump administration. So, um, what is your perspective? You were the last person to turn out the lights. Literally. On the Obama administration, yeah. and have to turn over this government to them. What is, what is your perspective, your thoughts, as we are now nearly two and a half years into this administration? Is it over yet? <laughs> well, look, in a, in a much more serious... Well, that was kind of serious, too. But, it, but, look, elections have consequences. And one of the reasons why we spent so much time working mightily to try to get legislation through on our major initiatives 
was so that they wouldn't be subject to the whim of the next president. And look, we signed executive orders that repealed a lot of the stuff that President Bush did, and that's what you get to do when you're the president. And so if you take the Affordable Care Act or the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they were, we spent a lot of time and energy trying to get them done, and they're still the law of the land. And I think that what I think about, because people often say, well, oh, it must be particularly painful to you. And for those of you who look around the room, it's like old home week. Several of the people who were in the administration are here. Um, it must have been particularly hard on you to see all of the effort, all your hard work go down the drain. I go, no, no. Look, it was a privilege to work there for eight years. What's hard for me to do is to see people who think that they're going to lose their health care because they have a pre-existing condition or young people who are worried about um, whether or not college will be affordable or all of us wondering what in the world is going on where you think it's okay to put kids in, uh, in cages at the border and how are we going to be the beacon of hope when we're behaving in ways that we would be um, severely criticizing other countries for. And so I could sit around and just, as I said, go through those stages of grief or I could try to figure out, well, look, what can I do individually and collectively to try to prepare for the next election and not just the presidential election, which is one of the reasons why Michelle Obama and I created this organization called When We All Vote, because we want to change the culture in this country around voting at all levels. Too many people are shunning the institution and it is our democracy. It's only going to be as strong as we make it. And when I finally concluded after I tried to figure out what happened uh, in the last election to no avail, I think where I, where I landed was the statistic that 43% of eligible voters didn't vote in the presidential race. And so if we don't participate, we have to bear the consequences. And so I'm hoping that the midterm elections um, portend well for what will happen in the next presidential race. And the people at all at state level and federal government will earn the, the respect of the people um, who put them there. And that they will recognize, again, full circle to my first point, Stop putting your short-term political interests ahead of what's good for the country. And that won't happen until we change. Okay, okay so we are going to alternate between the two of you, um, between the two microphones, and we'll start with you. If you okay, could, could you introduce identify yourself. Yeah. I'm just going to lower this a little. I'm a little vertically challenged. Uh, so earlier tonight, you talked about how you had created a plan for yourself. Um, by age 30, the benchmarks that you wanted to hit, what you envisioned for your life at that point, but then acknowledged that you zigged and zagged quite a bit at that point because you were unhappy. I'm 30. Uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> like some zig and zags are going to happen. <laughs> so what... Where did you find the confidence to zig and zag and make different choices than you would envision for yourself? And what advice would you give to your former 30-year-old self that can be applied? Such a good question. So that's really the topic of a lot of my book. And I think, well, first of all, I was really miserable. And that's a motivator. I wonder sometimes if I'd just been okay, yeah. would I have wallowed in mediocrity my whole life? But I was really, really unhappy. And I had a friend who pushed me and said, you don't, have to you don't have to be satisfied with this. And I had a daughter who I was solely responsible for, and I really wanted her to be proud of me. And I will be honest with you, I had a safety net. I mean, I had parents who I knew would catch me if I fell. And I was lucky that they, have, you know, they gave me unconditional love and 
set high expectations for me, but they did give me the safety that my father used to take my daughter to school every day from the time she was in pre-kindergarten until the time she went off to college. And so, I mean, I had a circle of support, an extended family and a lot of infrastructure. And so if I stumbled and fell, I would have a soft landing. And that made it a little easier to take risks. But I think sometimes those of us who are um, in comfortable positions but not happy are just afraid, well, what will happen if it doesn't work out? And what will happen is, what will happen is you'll find something else. And I was so miserable craving the comfort zone and too afraid to get outside of that. And the adventure is in the zig and the zag. It really is. And the good thing about your generation, I just read a study that said you're going to have either from like 14 or 17 jobs. So nobody's expecting you to stay in any one place too long. And I, and I also think that when you're in a job, you should be working as hard as you can, but you should be preparing yourself for the next step. And, and at your age, keep your aperture as wide as possible and be curious. And, and nobody really is going to... It will, not only will it not be a ding against you if you get out of that comfort zone, but I wouldn't be here if I had not been willing to leave that law firm. And I'm not saying... I saw a few of you at the big law firms. If you love it, great. But I will say this. I did not love it. But... I learned an awful lot in six years that helped me with every other position I had. And so even if you're miserable where you are, keep learning. Keep learning, doing what you're doing, and then look for an opportunity for that adventure. Thank you. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I promise. I promise it'll be fine. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. My name is Nathan, and I'm a local college student here in the Washington, D.C. area. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, in the book, I saw a photograph from the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library and Museum in April 2014. And my question is, um, what would you say were some of the most meaningful aspects, what would you say were some of the most meaningful aspects of the conference at the Johnson Library in Austin, Texas to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in, in April 2014. Well, it was quite a celebration, and thank you for bringing it up. Uh, and it's hard to believe, for those of us who are old enough to remember when it actually passed, what a remarkable accomplishment it was. And I love that photo because I'm standing with President Obama and a dear friend of ours, Marty Nesbitt, listening to the recordings that they had, because they recorded all the phone calls, right? And this was one where um, Lady Bird Johnson was saying she was giving him a grade on how poorly she thought he had done on his speech the day before. <laughs> She's like, yeah, it wasn't very good. And, then, and so we were laughing at the moment. But I'll, I'll tell you a story from that era that, uh, that one of the Johnson uh, daughters told me. She said, it was Lucy who said that the morning that the... Uh, act passed. She was supposed to um, go out somewhere, but there were, everybody was gone, so she was the only one at home with her dad. And she was on what's called daddy duty, so she had to go to the bill signing. And she didn't really want to go to the bill signing. And they didn't have the... So her father says, meet me in the uh, dip room, the diplomatic room. So she said, well, that's odd, because usually bill signings are on the state floor. But lo and behold, they, she goes to the dip room, and they head up to the Capitol. And she said, Daddy, why are we going up to the Capitol? And he said, because the people who took the vote here for this important piece of legislation are up there, and I did show them respect. 
And then he gave the pen, one of the pens to Everett Dirksen from Illinois. And she said, Daddy, why did you give it to him? Why didn't you give it to the civil rights leaders? And he said, it took more for him to cast that vote than it took for them. And it wouldn't happen without him. So I think part of the arc of history is that we have to appreciate that lightning bolts don't happen every day. And when they do, it's because there were decades and decades and decades of hard work. And at this time when we're kind of in the short-termism, like immediate gratification, I used to have to, I sound like personal, I walked five miles to school every day. But we used to have to go to the library to look things up on index cards. You don't even know what index cards are if you're under 40. Everything is so easy now. It's like right there. But the, but the arc of the moral universe, bending our country in a positive direction, it just takes time. And so I think we didn't get to enjoy the entire celebration that day. I'm glad that they had a great conference because I think we have to be students of history to appreciate the work that lies ahead. Thank you. Good evening, Valerie. Good evening. Um, my name is Julius Rosenwald Ware, and the reason I say that is I used to get beat up a lot in school, uh, bullied, and, uh, and I know that you said that. Um, uh, my father's from Greenwood, Mississippi, and, and I find that we have a lot of family in Chicago. Um, I remember the first time I saw you um, on TV um, standing back, and I thought of the song, The Wind Beneath my wings, Aww, that that's you, nice. you, you seem to have the ability to not have to be out front, to be able to be supportive, and I think that is admirable. Um, you've done a lot, and um, actually I have a couple of asking a question. Um, what is your next chapter going to be? Because you've already achieved so much. What can you possibly do next? Um, the other asked, my cousin was two years behind you at Stanford. And so I was wondering, uh, are you going to do other signings in the area or is Stanford going to do Yes, that? yes. I'm going okay. definitely back to my alma mater. I'll be at Stanford and at Michigan. So you can tell your, uh, you say your cousin? She's, she's here. No, are you going to, the Stanford club, is there going to be one here? Another one here? In yeah. D.C.? Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. For sure, but now I forgot what the first question was. Okay, the ask, the ask was. The next chapter. The oh, ask my next was, chapter. Yes. And then I, and That's then a I, bad sign when I can't remember the question. Okay. Maybe you know what my next chapter is. Yeah. And, and, before we, and before you do your next chapter, I, I have to say that you can do your next chapter, but then the next question will have to be the last question. Okay, okay. so. All okay. right, so, so I'm gonna answer that question so you okay. don't ask, so we give somebody else a chance. Sure, yes, so, yes. so I'm in my next chapter. And it is, uh, well, President Obama said this when he left office. He was right. He said, the most important office is the office of citizen. And so I'm about the business of being a citizen. And I, I did some, in addition to trying to figure out what the world happened in that election, I also said to myself, look, I had the chance, the privilege, I should say, of working on every issue before it landed on his desk. And there's a lot of issues that land on the president's desk. And I said, well, which ones do you really, really care passionately about and want to spend time on going forward? And they are gender equity, which is why we formed the United State of Women. Mm -hmm. I care a great deal about getting people to vote, which is why Mrs. Obama and I formed When We All Vote. Uh, I joined the faculty at the University of Chicago Law School, which is kind of funny since I haven't practiced law in so long. 
But uh, I love that. They're helping me do research, and it's just an enriched environment in which to live. I'm helping President Obama with his foundation. I've joined a few boards, and in my free time, I wrote a book. <laughs> right? Okay. But, but, okay. I left out the best, okay. <laughs> the best for last, which is I'm going to become a grandmother. <laughs> Wonderful. Full-time job. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Yes. And this is the last question. And I like it. You're prepared. Okay, speak up so we can hear you. I have two questions today, and they are, what is the best part of being a mom for you? What's the best part of what? Being a mom? Oh, oh. honey. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of being a mom is knowing that you are responsible for helping shape somebody else. And from the second they are born, you feel a love like no love you've ever felt before. And you think it's magical on the day they're born, and then one day you look up and they're 33 years old, and you realize you love them more each and every day, and the best part about having a 33-year-old baby is that not only do I love her, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second question? My second question is, have you ever met Sonny and Bo? Have I ever met Sonny and Bo? Yes, I have. I have spent quality time with both Sonny and Bo. They are very different personalities. <laughs> Enough said. What's your name? Hiya. And how old are you? Eight. Do you know when I was eight, there was no earthly way I could have stood up and spoken to 10 people, let alone a crowd of 800. I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.